You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. bow our heads together before God. Our Father, it is before your word now that we bow our hearts and our minds. We are under your word and we need the ministry of your spirit and of you to be here to guide us into all truth, to give us the understanding, to apply it to our lives. Father, we know that your word contains everything for us that is profitable for life and for godliness. And we ask today that you would feed us with the bread of life, with the word of truth, as we come expectantly to hear from you now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I asked you a couple of weeks ago, why is it that Christians don't seem all too excited about going to heaven? And I gave you the illustration about driving down the road and seeing a car that might come into your lane of traffic and swerving out of the way in order to avoid dying. And I don't want you to walk away from all of that thinking, oh great, our pastor's a suicidal maniac, because I'm not at all. And... Uh, I was spend, spend a lot of time thinking the last couple of weeks, why is it that if heaven is so good that we really don't seem all too excited about going there? We seem to fight death and avoid death and try and run away from death, and there's part of us that is fearful of death. I mean, we've, we've never died before, so we really don't know what it's like to actually go through the process of dying. And we know that heaven must be great and grand and glorious. We read the descriptions in Scripture, John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms or many mansions and I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself. And there's something inside of us that inherently knows that there is nothing in this world as sin-cursed, as fallen, as miserable, as destroyed by sin as it is that can even begin to compare with the glory that is to be revealed to us as the sons of God. We know that everything here that we enjoy, everything here that we consider to be glorious and great and good, really cannot even be compared or even put side by side with that which we really wait for. So if we know from the Bible, if we know instinctively as Christians that there's something so much better that awaits us, why is it that we don't seem all too excited about going to heaven to be there? And I would say not probably not that nobody here is excited to go to heaven. Some of you maybe are just longing for the day that the Lord's going to take you home and you can't wait. You're packed up, prayed up, and ready to go, as Bud Schaefer used to say, and you're just waiting for that day, waiting for that opportunity, and you're longing for that. But most of us, really, most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we really don't want to die just yet. Why is that? Well, a lot of people gave me some good feedback the last couple of weeks, which I always appreciate, by the way. Good feedback and negative feedback. I appreciate both of them. Got a lot of good feedback. Some suggested maybe it's because all of us inherently have something about us that is geared for self-preservation. Isn't that the truth? As living creatures, we do try to preserve ourselves. It seems that most of the rest of creation does the same. They want to reproduce. They want to preserve themselves. They avoid death. We all do that. Deer don't walk up to the hunters and place their foreheads against the barrel of the rifle unless they're out on the Hope Peninsula. But that's not what deer usually do. They run. They try and preserve themselves. As creatures, we do the same thing. As human beings, there is something built into us naturally that seeks to preserve ourselves. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. It's quite natural. It's part of creation to try and preserve yourself. We avoid death because death is an unnatural enemy. We're not, we weren't created to die. We were created to live forever. And so death is always an unwelcome foe. Even though it's been conquered, the fear of death has been taken away. And the results of death for the believer have been nullified and, and taken completely out of the picture. There's still something about us that sees us as the enemy that it is. And it is an enemy, a defeated enemy, but an enemy nonetheless. There's also part of us, I think, that has a wrong view of heaven. And I think we would all kind of, some of us would laugh and some of us would cry if we went around the room and I asked each of you, give me a one or two sentence description of what you think heaven is going to be like. Some of you would think that heaven is one long eternal worship service. And you can't hardly picture this worship service going past 1230 and none of you wants to be here if it does. And you can't even fathom one that would go on for eternity. So you don't long for that at all because you picture heaven as being one long Time at Kootenai Community Church. As miserable as or as good that you might think that that is. Uh, some of you maybe think heaven is one long heart playing session on a cloud. And if you're as musical as I am, then you cannot look forward to that no matter what. Some of you maybe see heaven as a place where we all sort of hang around and we're disembodied spirits and we try and shake hands with one another, but we can't, so we just put them in our white robes that we all sort of float around in. And we do this for all of eternity. And the 10 and 20,000 years go by and we've met everybody we wanted to meet and told all the stories we wanted to tell and heard all the jokes and learned everything that we want to learn. And now we're sort of 20,000 years into eternity and we're looking at the next 20,000 thinking, what are we going to do with this? Like a badly planned social gathering where you all sort of sit around and wonder, what are we going to talk about next? Maybe your vision of heaven is all of those things sort of wrapped up together. One long eternal worship service playing violins and harps on a cloud standing around not knowing what to say, or you've already said holy, holy, holy a hundred thousand times, you just you can't imagine that you're going to say it again. Maybe there's part of us that just has a real lack of faith. We honestly have a hard time believing that the grace that's brought us safe thus far will safely bring us home. And we we just can't really believe that on the other side of this life there is an eternity and a heaven, and that it's completely by grace, and we're like the person that Brian described last week who really is afraid to die because they're not quite sure if their faith is strong enough or if they have enough faith to save them. You want to know what it is for me? I want to see all my children trust Christ. And I want to baptize all four of them. I want to see, I want to give my daughters away in marriage. I want to see the women or the young ladies that my sons will marry. And I want to see my grandchildren. And I want to see my children baptize my grandchildren. And I want to see my grandchildren trust Christ. And I want to see all of them trust Christ. And I want to hold them on my knee. And I want to see my great-grandchildren. I want to see the people that my grandchildren are going to marry so that I can you know, sort of put my stamp of approval, either yay or nay, on them. And they've, they've got to sort of meet my expectations. And then the same thing with my great-grandchildren. I'd love to see my grandchildren baptize my great-grandchildren, see all my great-grandchildren trust the Lord. To be honest with you, I want to be married to the same woman for 30, 40, or 50 years and celebrate our 70th anniversary together, which is, I was married young. I was married at 20-something, really young. <laughs> and I could conceivably see my 70th wedding anniversary or even later if the Lord grants me long life. I often pray that the Lord would grant me long life and allow me to see the, my offspring's offspring, my great-grandchildren. I want that. To be quite frank with you, I'm not done serving the Lord. I've only been pastoring for 10 years and I want to do another 30 or 40 before I even look at quitting. 
And I have a desire to write hundreds of more articles and preach hundreds of more sermons, and I want to study the Bible until it becomes boring, and I want to preach through every book of the Bible, including um, Isaiah someday and all of the Psalms. I never want to stop expositing Scripture, and I want to do that until I die. I want to die at the age of 95 in a pulpit with all of my children and grandchildren in the congregation in the middle of explaining the Gospel. That's when I want the Lord to take me home. And I want my I want to see some of the kids in this church grow up and get and uh, get baptized and then get married. And I want to see their grandchildren get married and have the honor of performing some of those services. I want to write hundreds of more articles. i got a list of books as long as this gymnasium that I have to read before I die. And it gets longer every year because more books are added than I can possibly get read. And not only that, but someday I might even think about writing a book. don't know what I would write about. I'm not that good of a writer, but I would like to write a book someday. Now, is there anything wrong with anything that I've just described to you? I'd love to see a Christian school started by this church and eventually a Bible school established. Anything wrong with any of those? Nothing wrong with anything I just said to you. But did you notice something about everything that I just described to you? Did you notice how often I use the term I? Did you notice that? Because honestly, that's Jim Osmond's vision of how Jim Osmond's life would glorify God the most. But I don't know that that's necessarily it. And I is the problem in all of that equation. If I could just get rid of the I, then I could honestly say for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But it's getting rid of the I in the equation, is it not? It's because I have an idea of what would work best for me and for my family. And there is the deceitfulness of my own heart where I look at my life and say, of course I don't want to die soon because... Why would I want to leave my wife widowed and my children without a father? And yet, even that very sentiment itself, as, as holy and as good as that sounds, it can, be, it can be shrouded and cloaked with the sin of not trusting God to care for my wife and for my children and to do what is right. But if I could just get rid of the I, then I could honestly say, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know the phrase, don't you? It's from Philippians chapter 1. We read it in the Scripture reading. Open your Bibles to that passage in that book, Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be looking just at that statement today. Just verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We're going to take the time just to look at that one sentence, that one phrase, because it is the central key idea to the book of Philippians. Now, it likely in your Bible, it doesn't say key verse next to verse 21 of chapter 1. But if you study the book of Philippians, if you exegete it, if you sort of boil it all down, you cannot help but arrive at the conclusion that the central key idea of the whole book is in verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus Christ, mentioned more than 70 times in these four chapters, sort of pervades the whole atmosphere and the whole writing of this book. And so all of chapter 1 is about the purpose of Christian living. To live is Christ. Chapter 2 is the pattern of Christian living. Have this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3 is the prize of Christian living. That we strive for the upward call of the prize of God in Christ Jesus. That righteousness. And chapter 4 is all about the peace of Christian living. And that peace is given to us in the person of Christ. He is the purpose, the pattern, the prize, and the peace of Christian living. It's all about Christ. So if you take the whole book of Philippians and you throw it into a pot and you boil away everything and you just summarize all of the lessons, all of the texts, all of the big ideas, all of the examples, all of the teaching, every command in there, 
if you boil it all down to its irreducible minimum, you know what you're left with? Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now in the Greek, it's just nine words. You have to love the simplicity of that statement, don't you? The economy of words that the Apostle Paul, and he does this often, can take the entire Christian life, the entire philosophy of ministry, his whole reason, his whole motivation for living, and he can sort of put it down and he can crystallize it into nine brief words. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Isn't that wonderful? He compares this life with the next life. He talks about life. He talks about death. The purpose of living, the philosophy of ministry, his motivation for living, his ambition, everything he lived for. He describes every waking moment from the time that his feet hit the floor in the morning till the time his head hit the pillow at night. Everything is boiled up and summed down in that one statement, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And Paul in that describes the, how a righteous man lives and how a righteous man dies. So let's just take the first half. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Now in what way does Paul mean that? What, way, what is he talking about when he says to live is Christ? What does he have in mind? Well, there's a lot of different ways in which that phrase is a, that statement is a true statement. First of all, Jesus Christ is the source of all physical life. As the creator and the sustainer and the upholder of the entire universe, as God in human flesh, as the second person of the Holy Trinity, He is the creator of all human life. And if you're sitting here this morning, and you are, and your heart is beating and your brain is waving, it is only because Jesus Christ has willed it to be so. And every breath and every life and every heartbeat is in His hands. And every person who lives is given life by Him, and every person who's died, is that their life is terminated by Him. He controls as the sovereign creator not only the moment of your birth, but the moment of your death. And He holds it under His control. He is the Lord of life since He is the creator. But that's not primarily what Paul is talking about. Jesus Christ is not only the source of all physical life, He's also the source of all spiritual life. No man has life in himself, but the Son of God has life in Himself. He has the power to lay down His life, to take up His life again, and He gives eternal life to all of His people. He gives eternal life to all of those who repent of their sins and trust in Him for salvation. He's the Good Shepherd and He gives life to His sheep. Hebrews 5 verse 9 says, He has been made, He is perfect, and He has become to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. He's the source of spiritual life. No man is given eternal life or spiritual life apart from vital union with Jesus Christ. So if anybody is born again by the Spirit of God, regenerated, and given spiritual life, it's because of Christ. So He is not only the source of all physical life, He is the source of all spiritual life. And you cannot have eternal life apart from Him. Because if you don't have Christ, you have not life if you do not have the Son of God. But it's not spiritual life primarily that Paul's talking about. Although Christ is the source of all physical life and He's the source of all spiritual life, that's not primarily what Paul is talking about. You know what Paul is describing? He is describing the life that He lives in the flesh. For me, and you see this in verses 22 through 26, for me to live on in the flesh is really what Paul is getting at. For me to continue living my life is Christ. And this gets to the heart of the whole issue. What is the motivation for living? What is your ambition for living? What is your drive for living? Why is it that you wake up every morning and when you put your feet on the floor, what is it that goes through your mind? Man, I'm just thankful to have feet and I'm thankful to have a floor and I'm thankful to put my feet on it. I'm thankful I can wake up another day. Is that what goes through your mind? Or are you instantly thinking about everything in this world except Jesus Christ? 
So for you to live as your job, for you to live as money, for you to live as your family, for you to live as to get through another day, for you to live as your reputation. Why is it that you put your feet on the floor in the morning? Is it Christ? And when you go to bed, why do you put your head on the pillow every night and sleep through another night? Is it Christ? You see, this boils down to the, the sum and substance of our whole approach to life, our whole way of living, our whole way of dying, everything we do. This is practical stuff because it addresses everything from my eyes opening in the morning to my eyes closing at night and everything in between. It's all of that. For me to live in the flesh, for me to walk this sod, for me to breathe and have my heartbeat is what? Is Christ. And to die is gain. I think Paul summed it up in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 when he says, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I don't live on. It's not Paul who lives. As far as Paul was concerned, Paul was dead. They say, what does it look like to live Christ? You say, Jim, you tell me to live as Christ and to die as gain. But what does living Christ look like? If I were to walk into the home of somebody and sit down as a on the bedside or as a fly on the wall of somebody for whom it is to live as Christ, what would it look like from the moment they wake up till the moment they go to bed? You know, that's an easier question to answer than you might think at first. I'm not suggesting it's easy to live this way, but I am suggesting it's an easy question to answer. What does it look like? I can tell you what it looks like, but I can't tell you it's easy to do it. Do you want to know what it looks like? Here's the secret. It looks like Paul. It looks like Paul. That's why he could say without any sense of self-aggrandizement, without any sense of pride whatsoever, follow me as I follow Christ. Do you want to know what living Christ looks like? I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like the gospel. I don't consider my own life as any account as dear to myself, Paul says, nor that I finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. I am a defender of the gospel. My imprisonment is for the confirmation and defense of the gospel. I love the gospel, and my only concern is that the gospel may be proclaimed. He lived and died for the gospel. It was all about truth. You want to know what living Christ looks like? It is to have truth pervade every moment and every sense of your being so that it is all about the good news of the glory of Jesus Christ revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to know what living Christ looks like? It means suffering. It means suffering, and it means accepting the suffering that God allows in your life and doing so to the grace and the, by the grace and the glory of Jesus Christ. So that as Paul said in Acts chapter 21, I'm, Ronald, I'm ready not only to be bound for the Lord Jesus, but also to die for the Lord Jesus at Jerusalem if necessary. In other words, I will take whatever suffering the Lord allows to come into my life, whatever hardship, whatever physical ailment, whatever disability, whatever weakness it is that God by His sovereignty and His providence brings into my life, I will accept it and entrust myself to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. That's what living Christ is. To accept the suffering that God brings you. It is to glorify Christ in your body constantly. And to know I'm bought with a price, therefore I will glorify God in this body. Now answering it is easy, right? I know what it is now. It's to be all about the truth of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It is to live that truth, to glorify God in my body, to accept whatever it is that comes into my life, and to do so in a way that honors and glorifies God. 
It is to control my tongue, to control my mind, to control my hands, to control my eyes, to control my ears, to control every element that I have by the self-control given to me by the Spirit of God and to do so in such a way that honors and glorifies Him. It is to live a righteous and holy life. That's what it means to live Christ. Answering it was easy, right? So we can just pray now and you can walk out of here and you go do that for the next week. You go live Christ. Is that how it works? I wish it were that simple. But you know what it is in reality? It's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute walk with Jesus Christ and and obedience to Him and obeying Him to live my life is Jesus Christ. You say, Paul, what's your ambition? Christ. What's your drive? Christ. What motivates you? Christ. What do you live for? Christ. What are you hoping to accomplish? Christ. What do you talk about? Christ. When you go to sleep at night, what do you hope to dream about? Christ. When you wake up in the morning, what's the new day about? Christ. That's it. It's Christ. Now you say, Jim, you've described all of these sort of spiritual things. Believing the truth and obeying the truth and all of this, the gospel and suffering. But this afternoon, I've got to go home and I've got to prepare a meal for my family or I've got to go out and I've got to mow the lawn, and tomorrow morning I'm going to go to work for that taskmaster down at the, down at the, my, where I work and where I live eight hours out of every day. And what does living Christ look like at work? Does living Christ mean that all of a sudden everything we do is spiritual and we don't do anything physical? Nothing temporal, nothing earthly? Is that what living Christ is? No. So that the housewife this afternoon, ladies, when you go home and you prepare a meal this evening for your husband and for your kids or for yourself, why is it that you do it? You know why you do it? You do it to serve your family for the glory of Jesus Christ so that in living, it's Christ. And men, when you go home this afternoon, you go out in your shop and you tinker, or you go mow the lawn or you go outside and and relax around the yard, you know why you do it? You do it for Christ. You do it in order that you might recuperate, that you might regenerate yourself, prepare yourself for work tomorrow. And a person who lives Christ goes to work and he obeys his employer and he does what's asked him and he gives honest day, hard day's work for the money that he makes and he does so without criticism or complaining. He works the hardest that he can. Do you see how it flushes out in everyday life? It's just obeying all of the commands. You want to live for Christ, kids? Then you go home and you honor your parents and you obey your parents and you do what you're asked to do and you keep your room clean and you honor them and love them and serve them. And parents, you do the same thing for your children, not that you clean their rooms, but that you honor your children and you love your children and you, in, in a very uh, God-honoring and Christ-like way, in some fashions, you serve your children. And you do it for the glory of Christ. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. And now I ask you the question, how would you fill in the sentence? For me to live is what? Blank. You fill in the blank. How would you do it? For me to live is money? For me to live as reputation, for me to live as ambition, glory, glamour, security, retirement, family, work, recreation, entertainment, and you know the list could go on. Almost an endless possible list. For me to live is what? What is it for you? Is it Christ? Or does a hundred other things? Now I ask you the question, and folks, in all honesty, we have to ask ourselves that question, and here's why. The way you answer the first half of that phrase determines how you construct the rest of that sentence. If you say, for me to live honestly, and I'm asking you to be honest, 
Not spiritual and pietistic in your own mind, but honest with yourself. Why do I live? For me to live is what? How you answer that question determines how you construct the rest of that sentence. To die is either gain or loss. It's one of the two. For me to live is Christ. And if for you to live is Christ, then death is gain. But it is only when for you to live is Christ that death is gain. If for you to live is something else, then to die is not gain, death is a loss. If Christ is not your life, then death can never be gain. You can never look at death as gain. Now let me ask you, what did Paul, what could Paul lose if he died? What would he lose? Now you understand that death is a very real possibility for Paul. He's not just talking about life and death in theoretical terms and saying, well, if this were to happen theoretically. No, he's in prison. He's got an appointment with Nero. He's been accused of sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege, all of which are capital crimes. And his court date with Nero is coming up. He's been waiting for two years. He's at the end of that now. There's been no trial as of yet. But he knows that his time, either of release or execution or trial, is drawing close. And so he writes to the Philippians, and hanging over his head is the very real possibility of death. And so death is a very real possibility for him. And if he goes to Nero and Nero finds him guilty, he will go from the courtroom to the execution block and he's going to see one of those big burly guys in the black cloak with the black hood and the shiny axe blade waiting to take off his head. And what is Paul going to lose if he dies? Lose his possessions? He suffered the loss already of all things for the sake of knowing Christ. Is he going to lose his reputation? No, he's slandered, reviled, he's persecuted, he's hated by most of the world. He's looked down upon, he's despised, he's considered as the dregs of the earth for the sake of Christ. Is he going to lose his reputation? No. Is he going to lose his body? Is that really a loss? No, I'll be honest with you, losing his body is not a loss for me. Looking forward to my glorified body. Losing this one's not a loss. This is a body of death, Paul says. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? So he walks out to the executioner. He sees the executioner there with the axe and the big blade and the chopping block that's all stained by the blood of previous victims. That that guy can only be Paul's friend. Why? Because he's going to be the instrument through which Jesus Christ is going to deliver him from his body of death. And you've got to walk up to the chopping block with a smile on your face if you're ready for death. This is it. The moments are here. What does he have to lose? He has nothing to lose. But you know what death brings him? Death brings him more of that for which he has lived for. It brings him more of Christ, and it brings Christ more of Paul. That's what death brings. And if for you to live is Christ, then to die is gain. But if for you to live is something else, then death is your enemy still. And for you to die is loss. Now compare and contrast that with the how an unbeliever would construct that sentence. An unbeliever lives his life for pleasure, for enjoyment, for his own self-glory, his own self-gratification, for money, for riches, for wealth, for security, for retirement, for kids, for family, for friends, for uh, food and for drink and for a hundred different things. When the unbeliever dies, how will he view death? As As gain or loss? It's the loss of everything he's lived for. Because no matter how good an unbeliever's life is, no matter how bad an unbeliever's life is, it's the best he will ever enjoy. Because to perish without Christ is to suffer the torments of eternal separation from the presence of God in the second death. Because the wrath of God abides upon those 
who will not respond and obey the gospel. So the unbeliever cannot say for me to live as X and to die as gain. The unbeliever can only say for me to live as this and to die is complete loss of everything I've lived for. But what about the believer? What about the Christian? And there are some sitting here who are Christians, but they can't say to live as Christ and to die as gain. When we all know Christians who cannot say to live as Christ because they live for everything under the sun. We live in a wonderful, productive, prolific, wealthy, free, enjoyable, carefree society in which a hundred other things try and insert themselves into the equation. To live is blank. And Christians fall into the same trap to live as this and to live as that and to live as the other thing. What about that Christian? What does their death bring them? Loss or gain? Do they still get heaven? They still get heaven. They still get the glories of heaven. In a sense, it's gain. But you know what they lose? The rewards. The rewards. So as a Christian, to live for pleasure and enjoyment and wealth here is to lose a lot of those things on the other side of eternity. I still gain eternal life, yeah. But you know, if I'm living for earthly pleasure and earthly enjoyment and earthly rewards, then to die is the loss of all of those things. Is it not? And if you live for anything else, then death is always that enemy who will stand at the door and wait to rob you of everything that you have held dear for your whole life. And there are believers who get to the end of their lives and they realize, death is going to rob me of everything I have lived for. The only way you can welcome death is if for you to live as Christ. Then death cannot rob you of anything. It can only bring you more of that for which you have lived your whole life. For thousands of years before Copernicus, astronomers and scientists always reckoned that the Earth was the center of the solar system. You know this. It was the geocentric model, the Ptolemaic model, where they believed that all of the Earth and, or the stars and the planets and the moon and the sun and everything revolved around the Earth. The Earth was the center of the universe. And everything revolved around that. Now we know that that's the wrong model. For all intents and purposes, for a lot of different reasons, it worked out just fine for people. They could predict the rising and the setting of the sun. They could predict certain movements of heavenly bodies, seasons and things like that. But when it came to predicting some of the things, it was kind of off. It was a faulty model by which to reckon um, the movements of the heavens. And so since it was a wrong model, you can well imagine that there was a lot of times when it just didn't predict things accurately. And for instance, they would try and predict the location of a planet at a certain place at a certain time, and it would be off. And so the bigger the thing that they tried to predict or the bigger system that they tried to reckon with or, or correlate, the more adjustments and corrections they had to make. And the, the, the more the system went on and the more it was used, the, more the, the, more, the bigger and the more intense the adjustments and the corrections had to be made in order to make the system work. They always having to correct their equations and correct the information and make adjustments to this system and to that system because the model was wrong. And then along came Copernicus and he said, look, we have a way of reckoning these things which better fits the observable evidence and we don't have to make corrections and adjustments. And that is what we call the heliocentric system where the sun is the center of the universe and all of the planets and all of the stars and everything, are can, the movements and tracking of all of those things can be calculated just as easily with the sun at the center. But you know what? It's accurate. And you know what else? They don't have to make corrections or adjustments to the system. Why? Because the model is right. The same thing is true in life. If you say, for me to live is blank, and you put something else at the center of your universe, at the center of your solar system, then there will be a lot of things that will work out just fine. 
You'll be able to go to work every day. You'll be able to earn your paycheck. You'll be able to do the things that you normally like to do. You'll live for what that is that you live for and probably get plenty of it. So for a lot of the small things, it'll work just fine. But you're going to find that when you begin to track and try and reckon for some of the bigger things, like death, that you've all of a sudden got to make a whole lot of adjustments and a whole lot of corrections to the model if death is going to come out right. But if you are able to say, for me to live is Christ, then death will be gain. And if you have the right model, then you don't have to make the adjustments, you don't have to make the corrections, and guess what? It works just fine. And when you begin to try and reckon some of the bigger things, like death, guess what? The model works. Why? Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if you cannot say, if for you, death is not gain, then let's be honest, life is not Christ. If you can't say, death for me is gain, then you know one thing for certain, life for you is not Christ. It has to be something else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, for the gravity and the conviction of this passage and how it has worked on my own heart and my own thoughts throughout this last week. And I ask God that what has just been taught and said would be clear, convincing, and convicting to all of us that we might place you at the center of our universe, that you might be to us everything. There's so much that distracts us and so much that draws us away from Christ. We really have to have changed hearts and changed minds. And we need you to make Jesus Christ to us adorable attractive, in the center of all of our joy, in the center of all of our satisfaction, that we might wake up every morning and be able to say, today, for me, to live is Christ, and to die would be gain, because we gain all of Him. We do look forward and long for that day when we will stand before You as Your people, redeemed and able to worship You in all of the pleasure, all of the glory, all of the wonder of Your presence and the eternity that You have prepared for those who love You and are called according to Your purpose. And so we ask, God, that You would, until that day, give us the grace to be obedient and to live Jesus Christ in order that our death may be gained. In His name, for His sake, and for His glory we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.